So welcome to our Wow at Work podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Dargan. And Liliana Ashton. And today we have a very special guest, Patrick McHugh. Patrick is an international breeding expert and author based in Galway, Ireland, since 2002. And he has worked with thousands of clients, including elite military, fantastic, special forces, Olympic coaches and athletes. His latest books, Atomic Focus and The Breathing Cure, are available in all great bookshops and online now. Patrick, you're very, very welcome. Yeah, it's great to be here. Just uh, good to have the conversation. Work and breathing. It's going to be a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot wait. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Patrick, for joining us. Um, But yeah, you have written your latest book, as as mentioned, is it's it's to do with atomic focus. But you have written eight books so far and trained 700 breath practitioners over the last 20 years, me being one of them. But in one of your books, you mentioned about a newspaper article that inspired you to start this journey. And I'm curious to know which one was that, please. There was an article written back 1997, 1998. I can't exactly remember now. And I I know it was in the Irish Times, but I also think I've seen it in the Irish Independent. So I'm not sure which newspaper. But it spoke about the work of a Russian doctor. And he was working during the Soviet space race. And his commission was to determine the ideal composition of oxygen um, for astronauts. And he was also, as being a medical doctor, he noticed that when people got sick, they breathed faster and harder. And he asked a question, was it their sickness which was causing them to breathe faster and harder? Or was it their faster and harder breathing which was causing them to be sick? And he started getting his patients to breathe light, to breathe slow, to breathe through the nose. And he noticed that their improvements happened to their health. I was a chronic mouth breather at the time, growing up in Ireland, having asthma, having a stuffy nose, which is very common anyway. It's about 8 to 10% of the population. My sleep was impacted. Concentration was impacted. I had undiagnosed sleep apnea in university. The only reason I know that was because students were telling me that I was stopping breathing during sleep and they were firing anything that they could at me to stop snoring. But I was exhausted all the time. And I'm not unique. There's thousands of people, thousands of children and teenagers and people in the corporate world. They're in hyper arousal. They're overstimulated. They've got poor sleep. They've got undiagnosed sleep apnea. Their concentration is impacted. Their attention span. They're not able to handle stress as well as they should do. And yet they're expected to be productive. It's not going to happen. It's been missed out. And, you know, I feel it's unfortunate. I went through the education system here 16 years, getting through university, and you have to work damn hard to get points here in Ireland. Even back when I started education, university in, in 1992. And to achieve that, I had to study for 12 hours a day. I'm nearly 50 years of age now. My concentration is better now than it was when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. That shouldn't be the case. And there's a really wide rift in terms of when people think about the breath, number one is most of them don't understand what they are talking about. Number two, they don't understand the practical application. And number three, you don't have to have beads and robes to do breathing exercises. Absolutely. I cannot agree more. And this is something that I'm, I'm experiencing firsthand at the moment with my new company, Breathe Now Have, because when I speak to some companies, in my quest to make breathwork practice an important part of their employee well-being initiatives. Sometimes I'm actually, I'm not sure if this is going to be for us. It's a little bit potentially beats and sandals type of reputation practice that you are proposing. I suppose, Liliana, it's about changing states. 
how many employees, they're not able to cope with workloads. Their mind is agitated to the point that they're drowning in thought and they're so stuck in their heads that they're not able to focus on doing what they're doing. And we have to bear in mind that there are so many distractions now in the workplace, both external distractions with employees talking and disruptions and text messaging, etc. Social media, emails, they're all distractions. But there's also a lot of internal distractions because if we are constantly interrupted with by information technology, it's almost training the brain to be distracted. And the problem here is that when the mind is overactive, And there's a lot of thought activity going through the head. It impacts our concentration. And concentration is our ability to hold our attention on one thing. Our attention span is the length of time that we can hold our attention on one thing. And people who achieve great quality of work must have good concentration and must have good attention span. And this will apply to all walks of life, including children and teenagers and kids in universities, etc., Society demands that we can concentrate. Society demands that we have a good attention span. But yet society is sabotaging it and nobody is teaching us how to concentrate. And I'm going to say this. Mindfulness doesn't work for the very person who needs the most. I worked with 3,000 people with anxiety and panic disorder between 2010 and 2013. There was a lot of anxiety here in Ireland because of the economic crash. And the vast majority of them did not practice meditation and did not continue it. And we have to be realistic here. Mindfulness was developed two and a half thousand years ago. Life was a lot different then. You know, if we think about the breath, if you breathe out fast, you stress the body and mind. And if you breathe out slow, out through your nose, you stimulate the vagus nerve and this in turn secretes a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. This in turn causes a slowing of the heart. And when the heart rate slows down, the brain interprets that the body is safe and the brain will send signals of calm accordingly. So how many employees react with hyperventilation not knowing about it? How many employees are waking up in the morning and are waking up absolutely exhausted? And, you know, it all goes hand in hand. Like, can we really differentiate the mind and breathing and sleep? And it's by changing our breathing patterns and understanding breath. Like I didn't realize back 25 years ago when I came across this, my hands were always cold. My feet were always cold. And when I started to breathe less, doing the opposite to what most people are talking about, I was able to improve the circulation of my hands and feet. Like we have to even, you know, knock this myth that it's good to take these full big breaths because the full big breaths is getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. And this causes our blood vessels to constrict and less oxygen to be delivered. So anybody thinking that, you know, if you're stressed, go and take a deep breath for yourself. Don't take a deep breath for yourself. Take a light breath or hold your breath and have a slow, relaxed exhalation. And that will help you to de-stress. This is just wonderful. Talking about mindfulness and the breath, long, big breaths not working and being able to really differentiate between these two very key things for our health and our work environments. And of course, the key formula for success. So success has three key ingredients, as I can hear you say, 
focus, concentration and attention span. And of course, underlying all of that is the right way of breathing through our body awareness. I think the whole idea with the attention span is is a real issue. It is. Jason Fried from Basecamp talks about this. There's not much work getting done at work these days. And it's true, isn't it? Because there's so many distractions, whether it's people tapping you on the shoulders, meetings, emails, text messages, whatever it might be. And pulling us away from what we should be focused on, focus is the performing in the absence of, of thought. Well, that's really sort of flow where we really want to get to that state where we're so engrossed in something, it doesn't feel like we're doing it. And there's not much flow happening in, in work. And there's not much flow happening in life anymore because we're so distracted and so disconnected that I've even seen it with myself at stages where, again, I'm concentrating on a piece of work, but an email pings on my, on my, my laptop and I immediately leave what I was engrossed in to check what that was. And then I go down a rabbit hole of something I shouldn't have been. The workplace has, has done this to us. And it's a wonder why we feel anxious when we leave work and anxious why we experience work. In fl- terms of flow states, I reached out to an expert, an international expert in flow. And I asked him the question, is it possible to achieve flow state if you have dysfunctional breathing patterns? And I also asked him, is it possible to achieve flow states if you have obstructive sleep apnea? Needless to say, I never got a reply. Now, I'll tell you the answer to that. You cannot have flow states if you have dysfunctional breathing. Because if the body and mind is, a, is in a state of hyperarousal, you are not going to reach that part that your attention is moving simultaneously with time. It just doesn't happen. What is flow? But a state of mind whereby we are in total relaxation, but alertness at the same time that our attention is moving simultaneously with time, that we have 100% of our attention on doing what we are doing. And it's a state of bliss. Anybody can develop this. It's, it takes time to develop that part of the brain and the brain is, the brain is pliable. It's plastic. And once we do a habit continuously, and I often find when I'm giving public talks and I can give talks to large groups of people, and I bring my attention right up into the back of the head, my hold my attention there. And it's a tremendous place to be. And I would agree, Stephen, we need to turn off emails. We are drowning in emails, so we are. And for me, what I would typically do is if I'm writing a book is that I get up pretty early. I could get up at five o'clock or four o'clock, sometimes 6 a.m. And I don't open emails. And I will do three or four hours of total immersion in a book and then I will go to my normal everyday work. So I do it in chunks. It's very important to be able to minimize distractions, but the first distraction happens in our own head and you can, we can measure our breathing. Like people are probably thinking, well, I don't have dysfunctional breathing. Well, let's look at the stats on this. 75% of the anxiety population have dysfunctional breathing, 75%. Their breathing is that bit faster and harder upper chest and maybe irregular breathing. 30% of the asthma population, but I believe it to be much more. 50% of people with lower back pain. It's about 20% of the normal population. And you can measure whether your breathing is functional or dysfunctional by virtue of your breath hold time during rest. We've been using it for 40 years. And there's a new study that came out in 2018, which confirmed it, looking at 51 individuals. And the, the test is as follows. We call it the BOLT score. You take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and you pinch your nose and hold your nose and your time how long in seconds does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles 
and then you let go and you breathe in through your nose, your breath should be fairly normal. If you have a bold score of above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. If you have a bold score of 10, 15, 16, 17 seconds, there's huge room for improvement there. Because if you have a lower bold score, it typically implies that you've got faster and harder breathing and upper chest breathing. And how does the brain interpret that to be? If you're breathing a little bit faster and a little bit upper chest and a regular breathing, your brain is interpreting that the body is under threat because throughout our evolution, we breathed that way whenever we were confronted by a threat. And the brain, when the brain interprets that the body is under threat, the brain only wants to do one thing for the body, and that's to get the body to hell out of there. So a person could be in a meeting room and they could be feeling stressed as a result of what's going on. Now, bear in mind, they might already have dysfunctional breathing, so they're going in stressed anyway. I was in the corporate world. I was highly stressed in the corporate world. I did not like it one bit whatsoever. And this was after coming out of university education. And when I look back, I have to ask the question, was it the environment that was causing me the stress or was it my dysfunctional breathing and poor sleep? And in terms of my own company, it's quite a small company, but we still have 11 staff. We have 700 instructors and in, in, the, in the, the ability to be creative and intuitive and to, to come up with new ideas and to be productive, that's very important that we have that state of mind whereby we can focus our attention on doing what we are doing. Now, people might say, well, I've got a good attention span. You can do a simple test with this. All you need is a pen and paper and a timer for three minutes and pay attention to your breathing for three minutes. And as you pay attention to your breathing, every time your mind wanders, give a mark on the piece of paper and count how many times that your mind wanders. And a week later, do it again. And especially if you're doing breathing exercises and not just about taking those full big breaths, but even, for example, we need to look at breathing to the depth. Number one is that breath should be in and out through the nose. Never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. If you wake up with a dry mouth in the morning, you're not likely to feel refreshed. And what, what alternative do you do then but drink a few cups of coffee to try and get going? And, you know, we, I've been taping my mouth for 20 plus years and it has been tremendous waking up and achieving that deep quality of sleep. And that's a great way to start the day. So number one, nose breathing during rest, during sleep and during physical exercise. Number two, slow breathing undetectable breathing. Number three, breathing that's driven by the diaphragm. And number four, breathing that's breathing light. And like people might say, well, breathing is not for me. Well, I'll tell you who breathing is for. We have some of our instructors are special weapons and tactics. Lieutenant Scott McGee is one. There's different instructors throughout the world. I'm working in October with the Royal Air Force, working with our pilots. I've worked with the guards here, the Garda Shikana, with the elite, the elite units. We've worked with the Navy SEALs. I've worked with the instructors from the Delta Forces, which are above the Navy SEALs. One of our instructors is a captain, for example, in the Swedish military. We have a lot of military personnel and first responders putting this into practice. And I suppose when I'm talking with these guys, so for example, Joey Williams, his, his name escaped me earlier on. He said, if you make a mistake in the corporate world, Joey Williams is a SWAT commander and he's a teacher and instructor at Berkeley, California. 
He's one of our instructors. But like you said, if you make a mistake in the corporate world, you lose money. But if you're in special weapons and tactics and if you make a mistake, people die. And that's the difference. And that's why they have to have absolute control over their mind and their state of mind that they're sent into a stressful situations and they have to be composed because ultimately the measure of a leader is it's not how well you do when things are going right. Any monkey will run a company when everything is going okay. The measure of a leader is how does the leader perform when things are going poorly? Even on a football field, you know, the, who is the player who's able to turn the team around? The team is losing and you'll have one or two individuals that have a capacity to change everybody's states and get everybody behind the game and to bring on results. And you need power of the mind over that. But most people, we are not in control of the mind. And education, unfortunately, has let us down here. It has gave us the ability to think and to analyze and to break information into tiny pieces. It has trained our mind how to think, but it has not trained our mind how to focus or how to concentrate or how to have a decent attention span. But yet those are the very traits that are necessary to achieve a good education in the first instance. So, yeah, so I'm kind of harping on a bit here. So I'll stop in a moment. But the Brett has it, it achieved a bad rap over the years. And it's really time that I suppose the awareness is happening, as we were talking about earlier on. We've seen a huge awareness increase in the last three to four years. So there's definitely something we're on the cusp of something here. I think that's really interesting because um, I do some programs for school students. And one of the things I will do to them on, on Monday now when I'm with a group of students is I get them to take out their phones and tell me how much time they spent on their phone the day before. And I was talking to a group of six-year students and it was only two months before the leaving cert was about to happen last year. And one of the students took out his phone and told me that he spent 10 hours, 10 minutes the day before. And I said, you're in leaving, Serge, you're probably the most important year of your life. And yet you've had to get sleep and you've had to do everything else you've had to do in between that. But the phones are such a distraction. You talked about emails and all that stuff before. Microsoft did a really good study and discovered that with their Outlook um, emails between February 2019 and February, no, it was February 2020 and February 2021, there was 40 point, I think it was 41.6 billion extra emails sent in that period of time. So not just for kids, but for adults, that world of just being pulled left, right and centre all the time. And we have this idea that we are multitaskers, that we can do this. And I think the stats are 2% of the population could probably multitask and that's probably not even right. None of us can. If, if you could multitask, you could text while driving. We've all done it. Let's face it, it's illegal, but we've all done it. How many times have you sent a text when you're driving and the next thing is you just realise how close you are to the car in front? We can't. All we do is switch attention from one task to another. Multitasking is a myth. That's why I love when you talk about the whole idea of flow and getting back into the state of flow. We're not allowing ourselves ever to experience that because of these distractions that pull us left, right and centre, all the information that's available to us. Yes. And flow is those moments where we feel that brilliance, where the genius yeah. comes from, where we're lost in that piece of art, that piece of music, that sport that we're playing. Um, but we're just never attaining it anymore. And I think that could be a high contributor to the fact that we have higher levels of anxiety and happiness oh, in totally. society now than we had before. I also read in your latest book that you link body awareness, focus to body awareness, I should say, especially when we are sat at our desks for hours. And uh, I was wondering if you can give us uh, and our listeners some simple breathwork practices and, and exercises that they can used when they are sat at their desk for hours and they need to create some calm and focus in their daily lives. 
Yeah, so I suppose what I would like to do is just to go through the hierarchy of needs. I know Maslow did a good attempt in it back back in the day. Time has moved on. It needs to be revised. Our priority now for most people in the Western world is not food or shelter, thankfully. But in order to reach self-actualization and reach your full potential, the foundation is deep sleep. The second tier is functional breathing patterns, improving blood flow to the brain and to be able to change your states. The third tier is breath awareness, is being able to have your attention on the breath. The fourth tier is body awareness. The fifth tier is mind awareness. And the sixth tier is self-actualization. Body awareness, how often are we really connected with the body? Most of us are, how many times have a person They've walked from one end of the street to the other. They haven't seen the street at all because their attention is fully absorbed in their mind when they're constantly thinking. And how can we live life and relate to life if we are constantly stuck in the head? Because we as human beings, we relate to life through the five senses, through our sight, through our sense of smell, taste, touch, hearing. But in order to relate to life, we have to have our attention fully on what we are using our senses, whether we are looking around, that we are looking around without having attention stuck in our head. Having attention stuck in our head, we are ignoring the body. When I go out to do a talk or whenever somebody is going to, say, for example, an athlete, I, we always get them out of their minds and to disperse their attention throughout the body. And the reason being is because you can then move with every cell of your body. You can talk with every cell of your body. You can do everything more congruently. And if I was going into a presentation, normally what I would do is, especially if it's a large group of people, five or 600 people, I would take, first of all, I'm an introvert by heart. I live absolutely in the middle of nowhere here in, in Connemara. I have no neighbors. I don't want any neighbors. But whenever I turn up to give a talk, I don't want to talk to anybody because I feel that I really need to conserve my energy before giving a talk. So the hour before the talk, I would bring my attention. I would sit down and I would bring my attention inwards and I would breathe in and out through my nose. And I take a really soft and gentle breath coming in through the nose, almost imperceptible and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And then a very soft and gentle breath coming into your nose and a relaxed and slow in exhalation. I breathe almost imperceptibly that I am hardly breathing at all. And this does a number of things. Number one is it's taking my attention out of my mind onto the breath. So, of course, it helps to bring us into present moment awareness. Number two, when I breathe less air, I'm increasing blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain, which is a calming effect on the central nervous system. Number three, when I slow down the exhalation, I'm stimulating the vagus nerve. And this is causing a calming of the body and mind. And I know this because I've increased watery saliva in the mouth. Focusing our attention on the breath isn't sufficient. If you want to bring the body and mind into relaxation, you should actively change your breathing patterns. Because when you have a light and slow, relaxed exhalation, you bring the body and mind into relaxation. And you can do that pretty quickly. Now, I don't want to go out to a talk feeling too relaxed because that's not the great place to be either. So then I do a couple of easy breath holds. I breathe in through my nose and out through my nose. I pinch my nose and I walk around holding my breath. 
And I'd hold my breath for maybe 10 or 15 paces. Then I'd let go, breathe in through my nose. And I'd do that a couple of times. And then I'd do the stronger breath holds because with the body and mind, we can decide whether we want to relax the body and mind or whether we want to stress the body and mind. In order to relax the body and mind, we can do this with light breathing. That's breathing less air. With slow breathing, by slowing down the respiratory rate to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute, with low breathing, achieving optimal movement of the diaphragm. So that can bring us into a state of relaxation. And it's also very important for people who are on the cusp of burnout because it has been shown that people who experience exhaustion syndrome and burnout syndrome, 100% of them are in hyperventilation. They are in chronic hyperventilation syndrome, that their breathing has reacted to the stress. But even when the stress is removed, their poor breathing pattern continues. So before I go out to the talk, I do five strong breath holds. Not suitable if the female is pregnant. Not suitable if you're prone to panic or anxiety attacks. You have to go easy because the strong breath hold will generate quite a feeling of suffocation. Now, we use these exercises and we use them to lower blood oxygen saturation and to increase carbon dioxide, but also to embrace a feeling of suffocation. And... I don't do it primarily before going out to a presentation to put my body into a state of suffocation, but I do it to stress the body and mind and increase blood flow to the brain. This is the exercise. I take a normal breath in through the nose and out through the nose and pinch the nose and hold my breath. And I start walking. And then if I have some space, I'll go into a light jog. But if there's a lot of people around, I just hold my breath and I will walk. And I will continue walking until I feel a pretty strong air hunger. And then I will let go, but I will breathe in through my nose, but get my breathing down pretty quickly, five or six minimal breaths. I do that about four or five times, maybe six times at most, but that in turn then increases blood flow to the brain. Now, as I'm about to go out on stage and talk, I will bring my attention fully into my body and I will walk out with every cell of my body. I don't use PowerPoints. I don't like them. If I can at all avoid it, I will avoid them. The reason being is because I want to connect with the audience. The audience are already looking into screens or looking into computer screens. I don't want to see this big, bright visual up on stage. I want to connect. And I also feel that when I don't have to follow a curriculum, I can go more into the flow and I can talk for two hours then, you know, and it's really a nice place to be. And I have to say, I get a great buzz out of it. It's, it's really brilliant when you have that group of people there. But I always use that preparation. And that's just an example of using breathing techniques to change states. And like the military use, for example, box breathing. And we have, we have about 26 different exercises to work with. But just here's an example of bringing a balance in the autonomic nervous system. And they breathe in for four seconds and hold the breath for four seconds. Breathe out for four seconds. Hold the breath for four seconds. Breathe in for four seconds. Hold the breath for four seconds. Breathe out for four seconds. Now, I haven't timed that to four seconds, but you people will understand the gist of it. We can influence oxygen uptake in the blood. Literally, we can increase oxygen delivery to the tissues and organs, including the brain. We can bring that balance of the body. We as human beings can't be in a constant state of stress all the time. That's burnout syndrome. And I was talking at the weekend, I was in Ibiza, and I was at a hotel called Six Census. And this is a hotel which is frequented mainly by corporates. So if you Google it, 
It's a pretty nice hotel to stay in, I have to say, and I've stayed in hundreds of hotels and this one beats them all so far. It's not cheap. It was 1800 euro a night. So it's, it's, and that was just for the standard room. So this will give you an idea. I spoke with consultants there coming in in their 30s and 40s. And the one thing that they kept on telling me was burnout. And they told me that they can't even, the, the amount of emails trying to stay on top of it. And I was just thinking 20 years ago, when I came out or 25 years ago, when I came out of university, I would have envied these guys. And I absolutely, I felt pity for them because life is not about that. And it doesn't matter what sort of income you earn. What good is money when you're in a state of mental collapse? It is no good. And that's why they were taking this break, you know, and I can see why. And we were going through breathing exercises again to change states there. And there's something in it. And on, on that subject, actually, Patrick, I remember that during our training, you showed us a really good exercise uh, for panic attacks. Um, and it's to do with cooping your hands over your nose and your mouth and breathing uh, really slow and not too deep. And what is the biochemistry on that exercise? Uh, it would be great for, for you to explain it to us. I'm sure you'll do it much better than what I, I got. So... People with a low bolt score uh, typically have poor breathing patterns anyway. And if they have a genetic predisposition towards panic attacks, panic disorder, when they come across a difficult situation, their body is almost at its going into overdrive and their breathing gets faster and harder. Now, you have to bear in mind they are already breathing faster and harder. When people come into me over the years with panic disorder and I look at their breathing, their breathing is not good full stop. It doesn't take much to push them over the edge. Now, the ironic thing here is that these people will be going to their counsellors and psychotherapists, but what is being overlooked is dysfunctional breathing patterns. And also with mental health, I don't think anybody will achieve this stability of the mind unless they get their sleep quality right. And I gave a talk, well, it was virtually to the United States, well, it was on Saturday, to sleep doctors and orthodontists and myofunctional therapists. And I said, psychiatry and sleep medicine needs to talk together. And they don't. Because how many people with depression have undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea? And that undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea can be the precursor and the contributory factor to developing depression. But unfortunately, we see the human body as all in different pieces as opposed to being a unified whole. Coming back anyway, to panic disorder. If we go into that state of fight or flight, we breathe too hard and too fast. And too hard and too fast breathing, it removes too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. So when we breathe hard and fast, we get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs. And as we get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs, it reduces carbon dioxide from the blood. Carbon dioxide in the blood goes too low. What happens then is that blood vessels constrict. There's reduced blood flow to the brain. There's also a left shift of what's called the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. But basically, red blood cells don't release oxygen so readily when carbon dioxide is low. So not only when the person breathes hard and fast due to the stress response, their brain receives less oxygen and less, less blood flow and less oxygen. Now, this then puts, creates a feeling of an increased drive to breathe, but also a feeling of suffocation. And as a result, it causes faster and harder breathing. So it's a vicious circle. So traditionally, people used to use a brown paper bag 
and they would put the bag to a face and they would, as they exhale into the bag, carbon dioxide is pooled inside the bag. And then as they inhale, they're bringing that carbon dioxide from the bag back into their lungs to increase the carbon dioxide in the lungs and in the blood. The only issue with it is that oxygen levels don't get into the bag. So I was thinking, well, why shouldn't we use our hands? And I was first using this about bringing people's awareness through their breathing. So if somebody is having a panic attack, how should you breathe? Well, number one, as I would say, is improve your everyday breathing patterns so that you're not on the cusp of a panic attack. If you can improve your everyday breathing patterns, you will be able to deal with situations better. And also by practicing exercises which are involving a degree of suffocation. It desensitizes your body's reaction to suffocation so you don't won't go into overdrive when you experience suffocation during the panic attack. So if somebody comes into me with panic disorder or anxiety, I want to show them how to improve their sleep, number one how to improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain, how to achieve slow breathing, how to achieve light breathing. I will expose them to air hunger, but only a controlled dose of air hunger. I've made too many mistakes with people with panic disorder. I put many people into panic attacks. I put one guy into accident and emergency from doing breathing exercise about five years ago. These are the things about the breath. And it's only when you start, when you're working face to face, well, over so many years, you realize it's pretty powerful. And for some people, you have to go nice and easy with them and you have to expose them to the, that air hunger gently. So coming back to your question, Liliana, for panic disorder or for a feeling of suffocation or for hyperventilation syndrome, always think of the mantra, nose slow and low and also bring in light and I would even say, if you're breathing fast and shallow, so much air is wasted to dead space that it doesn't even get into the small air sacs in the lungs. So if somebody was getting into a panic attack, straight away cup their holes to their face and to breathe in slowly, to breathe in, two, three, out, two, three, in, two, three, out, two, three, but have silent breathing. And by doing that, you're slowing down breath and also look to bring the air low so you've got a better gas exchange happening. All you're trying to do is bring a better balance. Because I'm sort of new to all this, Patrick, and, and you guys know a lot more about this. So I've been following some of your techniques uh, the last uh, week or so, and I think some of our listeners will be interested in this because you mentioned at the very start, uh, yeah, mouth taping at night. And mm. that's one thing I've started doing is putting a tape over my mouth and I use the exact same because I looked on the internet and there's very expensive versions of this or you can just go to mm. your local chemist and for 197 I bought your 3M tape. <laughs> I yes, was delighted yes. with it. So I've done that. Can you explain a little bit more what happens there when we, we mouth tape and what's involved in it uh, at night? Yeah, like when you have your mouth open your tongue is more likely to midway to be mid or on the floor of the mouth and as a result then the tongue can encroach the airway. Also when you have the mouth open your lower jaw the mandible can fall back in against the throat. Our airway, which would comprise of the space at the back of the nose and the space at the back of the mouth and the throat itself, a good airway is the size of your tongue. So there's not much room for air here. And if we have the mouth open, the airway can be compromised. And as a result, then it creates a resistance to breathing. And for some people, 
they will have a reduction in the flow of their breathing called a hypopnea. And this can cause their blood oxygen saturation to drop. And for other people, they stop breathing altogether. And that's called an apnea if it lasts for more than 10 seconds. And other people, of course, are snoring. And the problem with that form of breathing is that every time that you go into one of those events, it can arouse you from deep sleep and it can cause sleep fragmentation. And as a result, then the person who is sleeping may not be aware of it. It's oftentimes the partner who has noticed that their their bed partner has stopped breathing or whatever. But it can contribute, no question, to high blood pressure, cardiovascular issues. Whenever I hear of a, a rugby player who can be very prone to obstructive sleep apnea because they're big guys with a big neck circumference. When I hear the, of them passing passing on at the age of 40 to 50 years of age, I really ask the question, did this person have undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea? It's often overlooked and it's a big killer. It's a huge killer. It, it, there has been more recognition over the last 15 years. I wrote a paper on this with two ear, nose and throat doctors, which was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine in January of this year, and it was peer reviewed. It's a 10,000 word article, and it's looking at the application of breathing to the phenotypes of sleep apnea. But ultimately, our breathing during sleep should be light, slow and deep. So I use the acronym LSD and it should be in and out through the nose. And by doing that, it will help to open up the airways, but also help to reduce the turbulence in the airway and the resistance to breathing, which contributes to collapse. Doctors, sleep medicine, normally look at the anatomy and they will say that the person is having snoring and sleep apnea because they have a compromised anatomy, but they don't look at flow. And this is a big issue. You cannot just look at the pipe itself. You have to look at what's going through the pipe. And if you have a person with dysfunctional breathing, they're going to be breathing hard and fast. And it's the hard and fast breathing that's causing and contributing to the turbulence, along with possibly, likely, is a compromised airway. So, you know, for for men especially, men should be waking up. And I'm not being funny when I say it, but they should wake up at an erection in the morning. And they should wake up with their mouth closed. And if the man doesn't wake up with an erection, which will happen with sleep disorder breathing, it can point to problems with their blood vessels. And that's why it's very important to bear that in mind. But we should all wake up with our mouth closed in the morning. Now, I brought out a tape since in the last one to two years called Myotape. But I'll tell you why I brought it out. I brought it out because how can we help children and teenagers? We were we were using the 3M one-inch micropore tape for decades. And I brought out, I developed a tape which surrounds the mouth and brings the lips together. And this tape now is it's sold internationally um, because I suppose 95% of our work is outside of Ireland. So most people won't have heard of us here. That's just the way it is, Stephen. So the taping of the mouth is... If somebody is apprehensive about it, I would suggest myotape. If you're comfortable with having your mouth closed and you're waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, I would definitely suggest use any tape that works. 3M one inch micropore tape. When I say any tape, use a medical grade tape hmm. that's fit for the skin, not duct tape or masking tape people <laughs> have used over the years. Oh, so. Tape. Uh, so, yeah. But but it, it really starts, that's the first thing I'd say is get your sleep right. If you can get your sleep right, 
many of the other things can fall into place and it's a great place to start. Yeah, well, I can see the difference now and I've been doing it for a few mornings now and um, I've been waking up feeling very refreshed. They're the first signs that I've seen something's quite different. Instead of that groggy feeling for mm. quite, a, quite a while, it could be up to 90 minutes after, that's not there with me anymore. The other thing I just want to ask you before Liliana does jump in with some good questions is um, with the mouth closing that you talk about keeping like breathing through your nose and uh, uh, breathing out and in through your nose. And when it comes to sport, so I'm going to be playing five-side football with my mates on Friday night. And for the first time, I'm going to try and play some sport. It's usually an hour long uh, uh, that we play for. Do you think I could possibly last an hour with my uh, mouth closed and just breathing through my nose? Or what tips can you give me to expect? Depends on your bolt score, number one. If you've got a high bolt score, it's quite possible that you could. It also depends on your nose. If you have a really well-developed nasal airway, it's quite possible that you could spend the whole entire hour with your mouth closed. Now, for many people who have a compromised nasal airway or a lower bolt score, they won't because the feeling of air hunger is too much. However, if you were to do all of your training with your mouth closed, you feel air hunger, increased air hunger during your training, but this is adding an extra load onto the breathing muscles and it's also reducing the response, the ventilatory response to carbon dioxide. Your breathing gets lighter your breathing becomes more efficient. So initially it's quite tough when you switch from mouth to nose breathing during physical exercise. But if you continue to do it, your body adapts to that. And your fitness levels and breathlessness will improve because physical training does not change your breathing patterns, only swimming. And the reason being is because swimming the face is in the water, the water is pressing against the body. So it's improving respiratory muscle strength. But there's another aspect to it. Repeated sprintability is a performance indicator in team sports. So you can think of a, a soccer game. Say a soccer player is sprinting for the ball. They pass the ball and then they've got a few brief seconds before they might have to sprint again. And a few brief seconds. So this is a performance indicator. And this was tested with rugby union players in, the, in Australia. They were 21 years of age, elite professional during competitive season. Their repeated sprintability was 10 reps before exhaustion, not 9.8 reps before exhaustion. And over the course of four weeks, they practiced, one group of them practiced normal breathing during sprinting, and the second group practiced breath holds during sprinting. Over the course of four weeks, the group which practiced the breath holds increased their repeated sprintability from 9 reps to 14.8 reps. And the group who were doing sprinting with normal breathing had very little change, marginal gain. If you can get even a half a percent improvement across any performance indicator with elite athletes, it's something. But this is a phenomenal improvement. This was a paper by Warons using hypoventilation techniques, the same technique that we've been teaching for 20 years. And I'll give you an example of it. This is not for the faint-hearted. This is when I've got a group of alpha males coming in and they think that breathing is a load of crap. And I'll show them at the end of it that, yes, you might think that now, but I'm going to change your mind very shortly. I set out 40 meter distance. I have them breathe in through their nose, breathe out through their nose, pinch their nose. And they have to sprint to 40 meters holding the breath. And when they get to the 40 meter line, they let go with normal breathing, but they've only got 30 seconds. So they've got 30 seconds of recovery before they do it again, breathe in through their nose, out through their nose, pinch their nose and sprint for 40 meters. 30 second recovery. 
and sprint again for 40 meters, each time holding the breath. And we do five reps. And that's pretty exhausting. But what it does is it's it's changing willpower, but it's also increasing the buffering capacity inside in the muscle compartments. It's much stronger than high-intensity interval training. And even if you jogged around your sitting room holding your breath, it would be much stronger than high-intensity interval training if your goal is to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis. So there's different things like when we're working with team sports, how do you warm up? How do you cool down? How do you recover? How do you prepare for the event? What? How should you breed taking a penalty shot? Like, here's an example. So how do most players breed coming up to a penalty shot? And you have to think of the pressure that these kids can be under, 19 and 20-year-old kids can be under, with millions of people looking at them. We've seen it with England, for example, in the World Cup. Is there a way to change your breathing patterns to down-regulate so you can focus on the shot? And it always comes down to the exhalation. But all too often, whatever breathing techniques they may be using, it can be take big breath in and a big breath out. Not going to do it. Because if you have a fast breath, all it's going to do is it's going to amplify the stress response. You need to take a soft breath coming into your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And that's just prior to the kick and breathe into the kick. Now, the other thing is a lot of these players will be hanging around waiting for their turn to kick and their heart rate will be well revved up and their breathing is faster and harder. And I put a quotation. I was listening to Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. He's a well-known podcaster in the UK. I put, took a quotation from one of his guests there two or three months ago. It was a brain surgeon. And the brain surgeon says, if I get into a tricky situation, the first thing I do is prevent myself from hyperventilating. And I said, this guy, of course he understands this because he knows that if he's operating on somebody and if he gets into a tricky situation and if he starts breathing faster and harder, he is not going to have calmness and composure of the mind. We need to be in tune with our breathing. And it's really, really important. So, like, just to give you another example, I was working with elite military snipers. And these guys are behind the sight of a rifle for one hour at a time. And they're in shifts. And they have to have absolute concentration through that sight without distraction. Totally focused on what they're looking at. And we were talking about what's the best way to breed while pulling the trigger of a gun. Now, again, this is just an example of states. And I said the best way to breed while pulling the trigger of the gun is you're having a normal soft breath coming into your nose and you're having a relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And just towards the end of the exhalation, you breathe into the shot the same way as the guy taking the penalty shootout. Now, some snipers breathe in and hold their breath and fire. Do some breathe in, breathe out and hold their breath. But ultimately, the best way, and we had practiced, and these were elite, well-trained, highly trained individuals, taking that normal soft breath coming into your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And the more you can slow down that exhalation, you're pulling the trigger almost when your breath is so imperceptible on the breath out. And this is when you have focus on what you're doing. I experienced that. So even before I was trained uh, by yourself and other trainings in breath work, but intuitively, I've actually found that when I was playing golf, my best shots were the ones where I was doing exactly that. 
slow breath in and then slow breath out. And then as I was again breathing in slow, I would take the shot. Those were the best ones. So yeah, it does absolutely works. And talking about um, nose breathing and um, life-threatening situations, of course, we have this COVID situation in the whole world. And I was wondering in your book, The Breathing Cure, you briefly mentioned about COVID and nose breathing and how it can potentially help prevent it. Have you done any further research on that? Could you give us some insights on what we can do to help ourselves on that? Yeah, like back in March of 2020, I put a video up on YouTube just just when COVID was kind of becoming into every everybody's imagine not imagination but everybody's life at the time and i went through the different exercise and the importance of nose breathing and i described my own situation i was after flying in from los angeles on the sev- on the 17th of march 2020 st patrick's day i was due to fly to sydney on the 19th of march obviously everything was cancelled but i was traveling internationally during that february it was around in february and march and I remember being in crowded um, tube station before that in London. And I was just thinking, there could be somebody here in this train with COVID. And what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to stand there with my mouth open. It was crowded, so I was standing. If you have your mouth open, you have no, your first defense against airborne particles coming in. You've no defense. Your mouth performs zero functions when it comes to breathing. Your nose produces a gas called nitric oxide. So that's nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is antiviral and antibacterial. So by breathing in through the nose, when I was on the tube, I was breathing imperceptibly, hardly any air, because I wanted to reduce viral load. If you take in less of a load, your immune system has a better chance of fighting it. But if you're standing there with your mouth open, taking in a huge amount of, say, the person next to you who's infected, Now, if that person is infected, if they are breathing out through their mouth, there's a 42% greater water loss breathing out through the mouth. They're going to emit a greater amount of infected particles into the atmosphere or if they cough or sneeze, for example. So by by breathing less air and breathing in and out through the nose and slowing down the breath to harness nasal nitric oxide, it could play a role to help mitigate, mitigate against COVID. Now, There was a paper written on this in Microbes and Infection, which is a paper produced by Elsevier, which is a pretty good medical publication. And they spoke about the exact same thing. And they also spoke about the importance of taping your mouth during sleep, because they said that this can allow the immune system to to mount an adequate response against the virus, because they say that the most vulnerable time in terms of the lungs is in the early early hours of the the morning. You're talking about 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6 a.m., now, there's different products who be, have been produced in this. Sanotize is one. And Sanotize, I've no affiliation with this company whatsoever, but I just find it interesting. Sanotize produces nitric oxide as an inhaler. And it has undergone a number of different clinical trials with people who have been infected and showed that it can reduce and shorten the duration of the infection. There's no mention of nitric oxide there's no harm there's no harm to it it's completely safe it's used by newborn babies if they're having respiratory distress that's how safe it is it's a gas that's naturally produced inside the nose now i contacted some of our own medics here in ireland and i told them i says 
it's not enough just to say, tell people to wash their hands and to wear a mask. Why not tell them to breathe in and out through the nose? You know, why? it just makes logical sense, both if they're infected and also if they're not infected. But the response was minimal. And that's the way it has been. And this was the response anyway. If you think about asthma and sleep disorder breathing, does it make sense to have them out open if you have asthma? And I'm only thinking we, we in Ireland have a half million people in our, in with asthma. The UK, it's 5.6 million or thereabouts. I, as a kid growing up with asthma, I was a chronic mouth breather. We're taking cold, dry, unfiltered air straight into the lungs. We're not harnessing nasal nitric oxide. We're breathing fast in upper chest, which is agitating the fight or flight response, disrupting our sleep. But yes, I'm not aware of any respiratory consultant in Ireland or the UK for that matter, who is actively encouraging their patients to breathe in and out through the nose. I don't know why the answer is. I really don't. I find it, it's dreadful. And I would hate to think that the reason that nasal breathing has not got the attention is because it doesn't promise profit. But the jury could be out on that one. Yeah, totally. I also wanted to talk about uh, your experience with children and baby because during our last training, you talked a lot about how important it is for them to breathe the, the right way. But I know Stephen had a really important question regarding longevity and breathing as well. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I just add that because I'm the one that's not the expert and I've come to this field or whatever, you know, and I'm just really, really interested in it. And all this stuff is fantastic about how we can transform the way we live, our anxieties, the way we see life, the way we experience life, just by this one free thing that we've been given, and it's the breath. And I saw one of the things that you talked about in the Oxygen Advantage a number of years ago was a study from Richard and, and Catherine Epstein uh, in Sydney. Uh, they worked for, um, I think it was the Kingston Cancer Centre. And what they did was they looked at a thousand obituaries in the um, New, York Times. New York Times. I thought that was really interesting because yeah. they began to analyse the different people who had died and their life expectancy and they worked it out. And they worked it out that if you lived uh, or if you worked in the military, your life expectancy was 84.7 years, which is pretty cool. And if you were worked in business, it was 83.3. But if you were a sports person, it was only 77.4. That's really interesting. Is that telling us that overexertion when it comes to sport or doing it wrong or breathing wrong with sport or whatever is contributing to a, a lower life expectancy? Or what is that? Well, I think there's a point we've interviewed for, for Oxygen Advantage. We've interviewed some of the top um, sports people. One was Robin Sutherling, and he was number four in the world in tennis. And he retired at the age of, I think, 25 and 26 years of age due to burnout. I've interviewed other people, top triathletes, international class, again, burnout, pushing themselves so hard. You think of the amount of females that their menstruation stops as a result of over physical exercise. That should not happen. So there's only so much that the body can take. Now, you can train hard if you recover hard. But we have to recover. And this is where in most recent years, heart rate variability is a measurement of vagal tone or basically a measurement of recovery has been brought into sports. And that a player, for example, or an athlete, if they train very hard one day, but if, for example, their heart rate variability is dropped by maybe 20 or 40 percent, they shouldn't train that following day because to give the body recovery. So there are objective measurements now in terms of that are available and many people are wearing them. The, the measurements are 
to provide you feedback of where you're at. But the question is, how do you optimize your HRV? And you optimize that through the breath. Nose breathing during sleep. Light breathing whereby you're breathing hardly any air to stimulate the vagus nerve and also strengthen the bar reflex, slow breathing and low breathing. So I think, Stephen, there is a greater recognition now in terms of that the human body, there was kind of an idea around there for many decades that stress, push yourself and push yourself and push yourself harder. But now that's, that is definitely changing. And, you know, even when you look at the code I I wrote about in the, the atomic focus, the code that's been used now in the military and the combat operational stress zone. And you've got green, you've got yellow, you've got orange, you've got red. And by reading the criteria of each color where you're at, and if you're going to orange, you're on the verge of going into, say, for instance, if you're in orange, it's a very delicate place to be because it won't take much to push you into red. Red is where you need support. Red is where you are in burnout. That's it. You need psychological, you need external support here. Really where we need to be is in green and yellow. And it's not about avoiding stress. Stress is good. Like when I spoke with Captain Nicholas, and he's a psychologist in the Sweden, Swedish army, that they will do deliberate tactics to push their soldiers from, from green into yellow to train them how to deal with stress. Think of nowadays our lives. It's almost that we are building our lives around total comfort. Our kids are growing up, we're handing them everything. They don't have to fend for themselves to the same extent as I did as a 1973 kid growing up. Mammy and Daddy is bringing them to the shop, bringing them to school. I really feel that sometimes, I suppose, the one thing that can can bring a balance here is sports. Because if you have a child playing sports, the child is going to learn many of the tools of life on this football field or on the hurling field or whatever sport that they're doing, they have to be able to to work with teams. They're going to get into fights and arguments. I think the breath work can also teach us in this as well, because as I said, it is, and it can be a stressor too. You can stress the body and mind to make those adaptations. And there's something positive there. But coming back to longevity, heart rate variability, there has been a paper written on it that longevity can be predicted via your HRV. And people who are emotionally or physically unwell have low heart rate variability. So this is going to be something that can be determined. And probably we will see it more and more in the corporate world because I can only imagine that corporations are going to be taken more responsible for the welfare of their employees in the future. And this is going to be an impetus for the corporations to invest in strategies and tools that can help to optimize the employee's well-being, but also, of course, ultimately productivity and performance. If I'm feeling lousy, I'm not going to be productive. That's the way it is. You're not going to conduct yourself well with your peers because you won't want to talk to any of them anyway. But if you're in pretty good form, you're productive, you're able to engage with your peers and, you know, it's, it's the best for everybody. All it takes is one person. If they have so much internal dialogue and angst of the mind, all it takes is one person to pollute. Not only are they polluting their own inner space, 
but they pollute the space of everybody around them. That one person needs to take responsibility for their own mind. And it's not their mind, it's their mind. But if we are lost in thought, and I really feel that this is something, this should have been taught in education. This should be part of our primary education. 16 years, and we are not taught how to control our own minds. Something missing there. And I suppose uh, when you're talking about polluting the other environments, of course, it's about also knowing that whatever we do in a group situation will also affect everyone else around us. But if I may, I am a a yoga instructor in in three different disciplines. But my favorite and the one that I practice myself every single day is a combination of yoga with breath work and is hormonal yoga. It brings together different ancient and also scientific techniques. That is the the flow of the yoga with breathwork. But I know that also you have dedicated a chapter on how breathwork can help mobilize hormones, hormones that regulate your appetite, regulate your rhythm as well, the rhythm that we have as humans and with nature. So is there anything specific in terms of breath work and hormones and how that can help in terms of your also mental state? I suppose like sleep apnea is, again, we spoke about it earlier on. If one has obstructive sleep apnea, it affects hormones. And one of those hormones that's increased is called ghrelin. And ghrelin stimulates appetite. So there will be people who are trying to lose weight, but they're finding it difficulty. And as a result, then it's almost a vicious circle because they put on weight so easy. This in turn is increasing their sleep disruptions, which in turn then is affecting ghrelin. Uh, In terms of hormones, female breathing is very much different to male breathing, and this has been known since 1915. Now, despite this, there's been very little research on it because most research done on breathing has been done by men. And when research has been done on women, they failed to take into consideration fluctuations in hormones during the monthly cycle. So post-ovulation, So it's middle luteal phase, days 10 to in around 22 or even 28, that there's an increase in progesterone and estrogen. And progesterone is a respiratory stimulant. So basically, when there's an increase in progesterone, breathing can become faster and harder. This can cause carbon dioxide levels to drop by as much as 25%. Now, when this happens, pain perception increases, pain threshold lowers, Fatigue, anxiety, panic disorder, the feeling of air hunger can manifest. And the females with the most symptoms of PMS have been shown to have the increased sensitivity to carbon dioxide. Now that can be changed. It's just unfortunate that this has been overlooked. And I would say to females to track their bolt score during the monthly cycle, because it definitely affects more females than men. Now, post-menopause, Females' sleep disorder breathing increases by as much as 300%. So progesterone helps to protect the airway from sleep for younger females, but for older females, plus 50 or thereabouts, they are more prone to sleep disorder breathing. And obstructive sleep apnea can cause increased sweating and hot flashes, hot flushes, etc. So again, autonomic dysregulation. If our sleep is messed up, And it is so common. To give you the stats on obstructive sleep apnea from one Swiss study, 26% of men aged between 30 and 50 years of age and 43% of men aged between 50 and 70 years of age, 9% of females aged between 30 and 50 years of age 
and 27% of females aged between 50 and 70 years of age. It's a fairly significant portion of the population. And this comes into work and you could read all of the books on sleep. Matthew Walker's book or Ariana Huffington's book or whatever books are out there. How many of them are talking about nasal breathing? And I would say that the elephant in the room when it comes to sleep is breathing in and out through the nose. You're not going to address sleep disorder breathing if the mouth is going to be open and breathing is hard and fast. Patrick, I want to say you've been absolutely brilliant in sharing so many fantastic insights. Um, If you were to leave us with just, say, two or three tips that you would recommend to enhance our lives, whether it's in the workspace or just for us personally, what would you recommend we could do? I would say start switching to nose breathing. Um, Your mouth has absolutely no function when it comes to the breath. It's simply a hole and it's a hole whereby air can go straight down your throat. Nose breathing during rest, during sleep and during physical exercise. If you get stressed in the workplace, always to bring your attention onto the breath and even to take a soft breath in and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. In and out through the nose, a very soft breath coming in through your nose and a relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And another factor that I would say is to measure your both score. And if you find that your both score is quite low, to work to improve your both score. And the information is out there. It's out there in books and different courses, etc. So breathing is pretty powerful and you can get a lot out of it. It certainly changed my life. I've seen it change the lives of thousands of people over the years. If you feel that you, you want to optimize your focus on concentration and productivity, I would start with the breath. Just to clarify also in terms of breathing through your mouth for certain breathing exercises, because of course there are different methods. Uh, one of them is the, the trauma release type of method of breathing in and out through your mouth for a specific amount of time. And also when we do, I don't know, other breathing methods like Vastrika or um, Bellows Breath or uh, no, those are through the nose. But there are some breathing methods that you, you use the mouth. I suppose it's, um, it's interesting to also mention here that uh, those are for a small amount of time and for a specific exercises to achieve specific results, trauma release or hyperventilation to then potentially hold the breath. But it doesn't mean that we should never, ever use the mouth for some exercises, but it has to be controlled. Is that right, Patrick? Just yes. so to clarify. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> like there's... In terms of the breath itself, some exercises are to relax the body and mind, as we spoke about, and some exercises are to stress the body and mind. And if you want to stress the body and mind to cause the body and mind to make adaptations, you can either hyperventilate, and that's breathing hard and fast deliberately. You could do it in and out through your nose or in and out through your mouth. And there are different exercises that can continue that for 40 minutes or so. It's a stressor and it's likely to cause a reset that's as an emotional release. Now, I would also say to people that any time that you stress your body and mind, always relax it afterwards. So when we do hyperventilation, we always do it in and out through the nose. So we have hyperventilation, full big breaths for 20 breaths. And then we have an exhale hold until a moderate to strong air hunger. But then we have breathe light for three minutes. So in terms of the autonomic nervous system, on one hand, we stress it by hyperventilating and by breath holding. And on the other hand, we activate the body's relaxation response with the breathe light. I think it's important. I also think it's important for people to realize that 
It's not so much how you breathe inside the studio, but how do you breathe during your sleep? How do you breathe during physical exercise? How much are you bringing breath work into your way of life that it's something that you carry with you? And the potential there is, you know, if you're living in your head all the time, start paying attention to your breath and start gently slowing down the breath to create air hunger. And that air hunger has got more going on than just simple breath awareness because it will help to increase blood flow and calm the central nervous system. So yeah, Liliana, different breathing exercise. There's so many different breathing techniques, but it's important for people to understand what each technique does. And some people might feel that they need to do a stressor exercise. Other people might feel they need to do a relaxer. Patrick, you're absolutely fantastic. And I've learned so much today because I'm the novice. Liliana is the expert and, uh, and you certainly are in this. I think this is transformative for the workplace and for us. Your two books, Atomic Focus, they're out now, and The Breathing Cure and the other books that you have. Patrick, you've been absolutely fantastic and absolute delight. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Stephen and Liliana. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We are so grateful to have you here. And please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already to not miss any further episodes. And leave us a five-star review if you have enjoyed this episode to allow us to reach more people. And if you want to learn any more about breathwork or our offerings that we do for companies, please visit breathenowhub.com and wakeup.ie. Happy days.